Okay, the heart. We're just going to use scripture as our guide in all of these things. Uh, The heart. When the heart tells us, and scripture tells us, the true condition of your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. This means that there's nothing that is more adept, there's nothing that's more skilled, there's nothing that's more cunning at deceiving me than my very own heart. And because my own heart is so skilled at deceiving me, I need to guard my heart from the appeals of the world. Proverbs 4.23, you guys all know this, you see this every week, you have this in front of you. Because your heart is so deceived, so skilled at deceiving you, you need to watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. So the way we watch over our heart is to inform our heart with truth every day. We inform it every day with truth. And that truth is only found in God's Word. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and our Savior, Jesus Christ, that causes us to grow. And the benefits of allowing God's Word to reside in our heart is a life that's increasingly pure. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word have I treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So when someone is shepherding their heart, they're disciplining their heart, the first place they take their well-shepherded heart is into their own home. This is the first and it's the most important place where we live out the gospel, and we need a properly counseled heart in order to do that well. Think about what it would look like with a heart that is not shepherded by God's word and prayer in your life. Let's look at God's exhortation in Ephesians chapter 5 to wives. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. As this church is subject to Christ, so also the wives are to be subject to their husbands in everything. Imagine what it's like to do that without a heart that is properly shepherded, with a heart that has not been counseled well by God's word. We'll be misinformed with with our role and our responsibility. We'll see spiritual equality and role distinction very differently than God designed us to see it. So it's so essential that we shepherd our heart right so that we can carry that into our home. How likely is it that your place alongside your husband as his helper suitable will be fruitful when your heart is not led by his word or in your relationship with your kids? Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, this is a woman speaking, this is Solomon speaking about his wife. Solomon says, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. When a mom teaches her kids, she needs to do so with a heart that's been well-counseled and ready. What kind of words do you use with your kids when your heart is not well cared for? It's no mistake that Matthew 12:34 says, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The ESV says, The mouth speaks out of the overflow or the abundance of the heart. If you're single and you live with roommates, or if you live at home with your parents... Romans 12.10 says, Give preference to one another in honor. How easy is it to give preference to somebody else just because it's your duty or it's your task? It's not your joy, it's not your honor, it's not your delight to do that. 
So a well-informed, well-counseled heart has direct bearing on, on all of the relationships in your home, whether it's with a roommate or a parent or a child, your husband. Caring for your heart is so important in all of those relationships. And the third and the final discipline for the ladies is the ministry. It's God's design that the woman who has disciplined her heart and is well-disciplined in her home, that woman is ready to function well in the local church. Sarah mentioned a few minutes ago, Ephesians 4.16, it goes like this, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, the whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And just think of the word picture here. You have a healthy, well-maintained joints that are promoting a strong body. The same is true in the body of Christ, and that is what we need to be. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Be imitators of me just also as I am an imitator of Christ. It's incumbent on us to be that kind of imitatable person. It's incumbent on you to be a woman who, who your children can imitate in the home, and those that you serve alongside can imitate you in this church. So that's God's design for us. It starts with our heart. Our heart will never be out of the picture. The desire for the elders at this church is that everybody in this church knows how important it is to shepherd their heart and the bearing that that has, first and foremost, on your own relationship with the Lord, and then the bearing that that has on your relationship with those in your home, the people that you love the most, and then the bearing that those two things have on on the ministry of this local church when you step into it, either on a Sunday morning when you serve or you worship, or throughout the week in small group, whatever it is. It's, it's your heart that leads you in all of those things. So those are our disciplines. So if you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. Before we dig into the passage in verse 14, we want to understand a little bit more about what Scripture tells us about the church in Thessalonica. And to do that, we think back to what we were in just a few weeks ago in church, Acts chapter 17. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he has been to the city of Philippi, and he's in the area of Macedonia. If you can remember Scott's map, you've got the little green dot that tells us where we're going. He's up at the top, he's in Philippi, and there is a lot of persecution there. So Paul is allowed to escape from the the city of Philippi, and he heads down to Thessalonica. And it was the Jews in in Philippi who were oppressing him and were opposed to the word and the gospel. They followed him to Thessalonica, and there was persecution there as well. Paul stayed there for about a month, at least three weeks, three Sabbaths. And he was teaching and he was informing the church well. But the Jews who persecuted him in Philippi followed him down to Thessalonica And the same thing began there because they were opposed to the gospel and they hated the gospel. Paul escapes from there and he goes down to Berea, journeys down southwest to Berea. He gets there, stays for a while. They were noble. They examined everything in the scriptures. From there, Paul heads on to Athens. And it's from Athens that he writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica. And his primary concern in the church is to encourage them. Uh, This is a church that is persecuted in many, many ways. And so our passage today deals with how Paul speaks to them in light of the persecution that is taking place. So we need to keep that in front of us today. 
Paul sends Timothy to them. Timothy goes to them to visit them to see how they're doing because Paul desires very earnestly to know how they're doing in this persecution environment. Timothy comes back with a report that they're doing well. They're doing really, really well. And Paul is encouraged and he writes this letter in response to that. So on the front page, of, in the first page of your notes, um, the letter really is comprised of two parts. Paul has thoughts for the Thessalonians and he has instructions for them. The first thought he wants to give them is in chapter 1. And that thought is that he's overjoyed at the reputation that they bear in the Mediterranean world. You read the first chapter and Paul is telling them that their reputation has gone out and the church in the entire Mediterranean world knows about them and they know about their faith. They know about their hope. They know about their love. In the second chapter, Paul describes his character as he brought the gospel to them. That he brought the gospel to them as one who who took care of himself, as one who worked to support himself. He didn't come to them with open hands expecting something. At the end of that chapter, he he talks to them about how he recognizes their suffering. He understands their suffering because he was part of it when the suffering came to them. That's why he had to leave. In the third chapter, he spends talking about his relief and his joy and his encouragement at Timothy's report when Timothy went to visit them and came back with a good report of how they were doing. So Paul's thoughts for the church in Thessalonica is the first three chapters of the letter. The second two chapters, he has instructions for them. He starts off with instructions about purity. He's speaking to them about how to possess your body in sanctification and honor. He talks about relationships within the church and how brothers and sisters in Christ need to have proper relationships with one another, especially in the area of sexuality. He talks about disciplined living later on in chapter 4, that people need to be busy and they need to work and lead a quiet life. He ends chapter 4 by talking about the coming of Jesus, the rapture, and how it should be an encouragement to them, and we'll spend some time in there today. He opens chapter 5 talking about the day of the Lord. There was some question within the church about the day of the Lord. When is it going to be? Who's going to be there? What happens? And there was some weakness over that. So Paul spends 11 verses, the first 11 verses in chapter 5, talking to them about that. And then he ends the letter by talking about relationships within the church, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And then he ends the letter by speaking about general principles for Christian living. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice always. Give thanks in everything. Familiar with those verses? I want to read a couple of verses for you, a few verses that just help us understand what the Thessalonians are like. Who are these people that Paul is writing to? Chapter 1, verse 6, these people are imitators of Paul and of Jesus. They received the word amidst much trial and tribulation. Chapter 1, verse 9, they have turned away from idols to serve a living God. Chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy returns with a, a good report about their faith and their love. Chapter 4, they are loving the brethren well in verse 9. Chapter 5, in verse 4, they are not living in darkness. Chapter 5, verse 5, these are all sons of light and sons of the day. He's not writing this letter to unbelievers. So that's the context in which we we find ourselves when we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Let me just read the passage for you, and then we'll, we'll dive into the different instructions that we see there. There were four of them. Paul writes to them and he says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everybody. 
These are four separate instructions, and we'll look at each of them this morning. Admonishing the unruly. In the midst of all of this suffering that we see in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, we see that there were some of those who had abandoned their normal responsibilities and they were waiting for the return of Jesus. And Paul admonishes these who are unruly with a command to work diligently. If you read the ESV um, in verse 14 of chapter 5, it says, Admonish the idle. The ones who are unruly are those who are idle. And we'll understand a little bit more about that in just a second. Let me read 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. I have an example for you here that will help you understand the idea of what it means to be unruly. When I was a kid, my mom used to um, make different articles of clothing for me. She would sew for me. She would make shorts for me. And she would make these shorts that had just a, a wild pattern or a wild design, leaves and flowers and all kinds of good stuff. So what she would do is she would go down to the store and she'd buy the pattern, but she would also buy, um, she'd buy the fabric, but she'd also buy the pattern. And you know, these patterns would come in a rectangular envelope, it would have a little flap on the top, and there was this picture on the front of what this was supposed to look like when you were all done. And it was perfect. So they had this picture on the front, and um, but then they had these instructions on the inside, and these patterns always looked so confusing to me. I'd see my mom, and she'd be sewing, and there were lines all over the place. Um, there were pieces that were shaped that you're supposed to bring together. You're supposed to sew these in this order, in this sequence. It was just encouraging to me to, to see my mom do that, but I was so lost and confused as I watched her do that. But my mom told me that if you, if you stay on the lines and you follow the instructions, if you follow the design that is put forth by somebody who knows what they're doing, uh, things will turn out the way they're supposed to. A good seamstress stays on the line. And so that's the picture we want to keep in front of us as we talk about what it means to be an unruly man. The Greek word for unruly means um, something that has been drawn up that is out of rank. Something that is out of line, it's out of rank, it's out of its proper order. So we're going to fill in the blanks here. The boys call it crank the blank. This is something that has its origins in military language. The unruly one has deviated from the prescribed order or rule. They've deviated from the prescribed order or rule. And this is a person who refuses to be ruled by the authority structure that God has placed over them. They lack restraint as they indulge themselves. This person's mind has no thoughts or intentions of submission to authority. The natural course of their mind is to retain their freedom at any cost. Living under the authority of another is is foreign to them. It's something that's repulsive to them. There is nothing that they cherish more than indulging their own will. And what this person needs is for the thoughts that need to be in their mind to be put in their mind because they're not already in their mind. And that's exactly what an admonishment is. Uh, The word admonishment in Greek is a compound word. It has two parts to it. The first word means um, your mind. 
And the second word means to place. So to fill in the blank here, to admonish is to place something in the mind. To place something in the mind. The direction here is very important to understand. Notice this, that something which is coming from outside of them is being placed into them because they don't have it in them in the first place. And that's what an admonishment is. An admonishment to the unruly man is to take something from outside of his mind and put that in his mind. This is an appeal, but it's not soft. It's not a half-hearted plea. This is a stern, stern warning. It's an exhortation that's a sharp reproof and it's designed to rescue the one who has stepped outside of God's design for their authority. The one admonishing is coming with a message. And the message says this, you need this message. You really, really need this. And chances are you might not know it. But you need this. This is a reproof. This is an admonishment that aims to do two things. The first is to show the person their sin. And the second is that it points them on a clear path of repentance. So what if you're saying, I I might not know what admonishment looks like. I might not know what the unruly man looks like. Got some observations here, some possibilities here that might characterize what the unruly one looks like. It would be the husband who's consistently complaining about the tasks that are expected of him at work. And he's negligent in those tasks because those tasks are beneath him or below him. They're not attractive to him. They're not appealing to him. It would be the wife who strains against God's design for her husband as her head and her joy and her authority. It would be the child who's always challenging the order that mom and dad have set forth in the home. It could be someone in the body who is just rejecting the loving rebuke of a brother or a sister. Here's one. It could be a sheep within the church, within the body, who is consistently difficult or quarrelsome. This is one whose nature is so cumbersome that the elder's service over that one has become a weight and a grief. That is the unruly man. Let's just keep our our idea of what it means to be an unruly man in mind of us, in our mind. And One thing that we can do is we can look at what an unruly person is not. The unruly person is one, is not one, who has demonstrated a pattern of obedience. They've been in obedience, but recently they've stumbled. There's a different response that's needed for that person. That person doesn't need the admonishment the same way that the unruly one does. They need to be warned. They need to be told that what they're doing is sinful and foolish, but it's not unruly. It will turn into unruliness, um, and unruliness is on the way if that sin goes unaddressed. It's important to understand that unruliness is something that is in place. It's a consistent pattern in somebody's life. They consistently reject the authority that's over them. So how do I admonish this one? Six principles for us. There may be more, but these are the ones that came to me. When you're considering somebody and you see the unruly one in front of you and you know you need to go to them, keep these in front of you. First, remember who you were before God saved you. All these principles, I'm going to bring a verse to you and you can just write down the reference and I'll read the passages for you. Remember who you were before God saved you. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived 
in the lust of our flesh. We indulged the desires of our flesh and our mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Remember who you were. Secondly, examine yourself before you go to them. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your eye? First take the log out of your own eye, then you will say clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So examine yourself well before you go to them. Third principle, embrace gentleness. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one is looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law. There is a way to give a sharp rebuke that is gentle. You go to the one and you say, I love you in the Lord. But you need to hear this. You truly, truly need to hear this. It looks to me as if there's an area in your life where you're not even close to God's design for you. So embrace gentleness. You also want to show them, fourthly, that it's God's design that they've strayed from. It's not your design that they've strayed from. The context is a little different here, but in Acts chapter 5, Peter is dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. And the the situation there is that they have misrepresented a gift that they are bringing to the church. They're bringing a generous gift to the church, but they're misrepresenting it as the entire price of the sale of this property that they sold when it was just a portion of it. So in verse 3 of chapter 5, Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The lie there is to the Holy Spirit. It's not first and foremost to Peter. It's not first and foremost to the local church. Three hours and six verses go by. Sapphira comes in. She doesn't know what has happened to her husband. She doesn't know that he's dead. She agrees on on the, the story that they have prepared for themselves before that they would bring. Peter asks her about the cost of the property, and he asks her about the details of it. She reveals her hand. Peter says to her in verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Sin here is against God, first and foremost. Whenever we sin in any area, first and foremost, it's against the God who put that design in place for us. Fifth principle we want to embrace is be clear about a path of repentance. Provide a clear path of repentance. This is not something you come up with on your own. It is something that God has given to us. He's given it to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Paul is writing to a church that is beset with sin. They have so many issues in this church. And in the first letter in Scripture to the church, he's admonishing them over a number of things, one of which is a man who has his father's wife. In this letter, he's describing for them what biblical repentance looks like from that sin. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's just walk through the earmarks of biblical repentance. Because when you go to the unruly one, and they look at you and they say, Okay, so I'm unruly. Help me here. 
you want Scripture to be your lead. I'm going to read from the NAS. I'm just going to read the earmarks you see. In verse 10, Paul talks about a sorrow, a godly sorrow, and the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. In verse 11, we see the earmarks of repentance. There's a vindication of yourself. There's vindicating yourself. That means that over the days and the weeks and the months that characterize your repentance, there's an innocence in this. There's an obvious, clear departure from what you used to be. You're stepping away from this. People, as they look at you, they can observe the difference in your life. That in that time frame, you have vindicated yourself. There's there's not a trace of that in your life. The second mark you see there is an indignation over your sin. That you're truly indignant over what you've done. You're saying to yourself, I can't believe what I just did. I am so disappointed. I am so disturbed at myself for doing this. I cannot believe I did this. I do not want to go there again. That was awful. That's what it means to be indignant. An indignation over your sin. The next year mark of biblical repentance is a reverence. A fear in the in the NAS. It's a fear. That fear is not being afraid that God is going to harm you. Instead, what it is, it's a reverence for God that's based on an accurate assessment of God's holiness, God's character, God's power. But there is a reverence that comes forth. That, oh, I'm in front of this holy God, this big God, this large God. I need to curb my behavior. I need to change my behavior. I need to let my view of God lead the way I live, the way I speak. As it relates to this, I need to let the, the character of God lead me as I consider this unruly behavior that was part of my life. The next year mark is a longing that you see there in the NAS. Before the person fell into the pattern of unruliness, if they're a believer, they enjoyed a close relationship with the Lord. There's fellowship to be had with God when you are reading your Bible. You are allowing God's word to speak into your life. You're speaking back to God with praise and with thanksgiving, with confession. That is a sweet place to be in. But as we all know, in any of our lives, when we embrace the pattern of sin, there is a, a harm that comes to our relationship with the Lord. And the natural consequence of our relationship with the Lord is that it suffers because of our sin. And so the one who is truly repentant from being an unruly man is one who longs for what they had with God before unruliness became a part of their life. So another earmark of repentance is a longing for a restored relationship with God that's been lost as a result of your sin. The next earmark is a zeal. That you have a zeal, you have an effort, you have a desire, an energy, and the pursuit of behavior that's opposite of being unruly. That you're putting everything you have into being not unruly. That you get behind this. You don't just talk about it. That it's something that you orient your energy, if you orient your time, you orient your mind. Everything in you is pursuing being a man who is not unruly. By being a man who loves being ruled. The last here that's an earmark of biblical repentance is an avenging of wrong. If there was any wrong or any harm or any offense or any cost that someone else incurred as a result of your unruliness, the one who is truly repentant is the one who wants to make that right. They want to provide restoration for anything that they've incurred to somebody. 
You're not indifferent to the cost of your sin. So those are some earmarks of what biblical repentance looks like. If you're going to the unruly one, you can help them see what it looks like to walk in repentance of that. It has to have these earmarks. And then you take the particulars of the the unruliness that they're demonstrating, and you can apply these things over top of it, and those will lead you as you counsel the one who needs to be led away from unruliness. So that's the fifth thing. Be clear about the path of repentance. And the sixth thing is be clear about God's grace that's in the gospel. You never want to leave the gospel out of this. The most deflating thing you can do to a person is come to them and say, let me tell you how you're sinning here. And you just lay it out in black and white and they know that they're they're guilty. They know you have them right. But you leave the gospel out. You've got to have the gospel here. My favorite place to go when we talk about the grace that that is available to somebody is Romans chapter 6. If you haven't done so in a while, read through Romans 6 and just take note of all of the grace realities. Smed calls them the grace propositions that are true there. Underline them or mark them or make a copy of that chapter, print it out, and, and just mark and with a highlighter or an underliner all of those things that are true about a believer. My favorite is in verse 4. I'll read Romans 6, 4 for you. It says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, this is the important part, so we too might walk in a newness of life. You go to the one who's unruly and you say, you know, Christ was raised from the dead, and the reason why he was raised from the dead is so that we can walk in newness of life. It is possible for you to walk away from this unruliness. God has given you this possibility. He's given you the the grace to do this. It's not something you will do because you've got a clenched fist and you're just trying so hard. You do this based on the truth that Christ was raised from the dead. One other passage from Romans 6 that I find very attractive is verses 8 through 11. And this talks about our position and our relationship to sin because of what Christ has done. Let me read verses 8 through 11 for you. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. This is all about Jesus. Death no longer is master over Jesus. Verse 10, For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that Jesus lives, he lives to God. Verse 11 is what pertains to us. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, he submitted himself to death. After he had suffered the full weight of God's wrath and anger against all of the elect of everyone for whom he would die, Scripture tells us that Jesus yielded up his own spirit. And he yielded up his own spirit so that he could be raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, he conquered death. And when he conquered death, he conquered what caused death, and that is sin. So because Jesus was raised from the dead, sin no longer rules over the believer. At the point of conversion, sin has been removed as master of your life. And Jesus is now master of your life. So you go to the unruly one and you say, you are not bound to this anymore. This doesn't lead you. It doesn't rule over you the way that it used to. I know that in my own life. I lived for 15 years that way. I know what it's like to have sin rule over you and to love it and to have it destroy you. So those are some principles from Scripture of how you would admonish one. Got some questions for us. What if the unruly one is my child? 
my believing child? How do I admonish the one who's rebelling against my authority? Again, some principles here. Not specifics, just principles. After you take a drink, you tell them, you know, God has placed you under my authority for your good. God has placed you under my authority for your good. You say to your child, I am God's agent for your good. You must obey me for your own good. And then you take them to Scripture and you show them this. Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents. That is direct address. There's no question. There's no vagueness there. It's direct address to children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So that, whenever you see the so that in Scripture, you need to look at what comes next. So that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. You say to your son or your daughter, this instruction is for your good. If you don't have this, if you don't have this rebuke, you are not going to live well. As a general principle, Scripture tells us that it will be well with you and you live long on the earth, generally speaking, when you honor and you obey your mother and your father. Solomon is speaking in the Old Testament. He's writing to a slightly older son, an older son, and he says in Proverbs 7, verses 1 and 2, My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live. When you keep my commandments, you will live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye, that these things may keep you from the adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. That's Proverbs 7, 1 and 2. When your child is in disobedience of you, they've stepped out from under the umbrella of protection that God has provided. This is truly what unruliness is. It's stepping outside of the line or under the area of protection that God has provided for wise, benevolent authority that God has placed over them in you. And these people, these children, need to be rescued. They desperately need to be rescued. Teach your kids that when they obey your instructions, you are keeping them from harm that will come to them that could be very, very, very damaging to them. What if the unruly one is my husband? How do I admonish my believing husband who is my authority in my head? Again, principles here, not specifics. I've got five or six principles and I want to walk through them with you. The first is pray before you do anything. Pray for yourself and pray for your husband. Pray that God's grace will enable you both to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry, James 1.19. It is so easy to be quick to speak when you're talking about another sin. Be one who is quick to listen. Secondly, come to him with your role in mind. Don't come to him in all of your strength and all of your vigor. Come to him with your role. Tell him, I am your helper suitable. This is God's design. I'm your helper suitable. Genesis 2.18, God says, It is not good for man to be alone. God knows you need another perspective in this. As your husband's wife, you're the one who has the best perspective into their life. There is no one who knows your husband better than you do. 
part of God's design into bringing you into a marriage together as two who have become one is that you would speak into one another's lives. You can tell your husband, I love you and I want what is best for you. And this sinful, unruly nature of yours is not what is best for you. I see this. I see this clearly. Third principle, keep yourself respectful when you do this. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. This was a passage to the woman who has an unbelieving husband. But the point is the same. To be chaste is to be pure from fault. And to be respectful is to have a sober acknowledgement of your role, your husband's role. For a believing couple, you have spiritual equality and you have role distinction. When you go to your husband, keep that in mind. That there's an equality in God's eyes, but there's a distinction in the role that he's given each of you. Bear that in mind. I mentioned it just a minute ago. Your role is to be as helper suitable. Fourth, help him see that this is how the body cares for itself. Ephesians 4, 16, we mentioned this a couple of times. The whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body. The body causes the growth of the body. And in between, there's all this text about each part working properly. You say to your husband, this is how the body causes the growth of the body. My heart here is for the proper working of our marriage in this. And I play the role in order to, of coming to you in this in order to enable us to function more properly so that the body can cause the growth of the body. That's discipline one and discipline two up close. Number five, appeal to him on the basis of your unity as a married couple. Stay with me on this one. Ephesians 5, 28. Paul is writing to the husbands in, in Ephesus and he says, husbands, love your wives as, as your own bodies. The point here is how the husband ought to love his wife. This verse is very, very commonly misunderstood to mean that the husband loves his wife in the same way that he loves himself. That's not what this passage teaches. This passage teaches that the husband loves his wife because they're one. And it says, husband loves your wife as your own body. You're actually one. And so you love one another together as if you're one. Why is that relevant here? It's relevant because the husband, when he's living in an unruly way, his unruliness affects their marriage and affects them together as a couple. It doesn't just affect him. It's not just his problem. Because it's very easy for the the natural response to say, well, that's my problem. Leave me alone. I'll deal with it on my own. No, it's not your problem alone. Because we're one here. It affects both of us. So those are five principles for you. And if winning him proves to be difficult or unfruitful, ask him to consider sitting with another couple that you know he respects. Any one of the elders would be happy to sit and listen and pray alongside of you. An elder and his wife would be happy to do that. Here are two verses that would help you see, help your husband see the wisdom in this. It's easy to remember these. These are Proverbs 11.14 and Proverbs 12.15. 
11.14 and 12.15. 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. You can tell your husband, we need guidance here. We need counsel. When we don't have any, we're going to fall. Scripture tells us we're going to fall. But when we have counselors around us, we put godly people around us. The function of the body is to cause the growth of the body. There's victory. I want that victory for you. I want that victory for us. I want that victory for me. I want that. This is wisdom from God's word. Proverbs 12, 15, perhaps a little more well-known. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but the wise man is he who listens to counsel. Tell your husband, you are going to be a fool if you don't listen to counsel because our natural inclination is to think that what we see things as and the way we see things is right. But you need counsel in your life. It's the wise man who listens to counsel. So that's the first passage, the first instruction in our passage. Admonish the unruly. What I thought I'd do now is just take a couple of minutes to talk about this together as a group. Um, I have a couple of questions to to promote some conversation here. Um, In what areas can a a person demonstrate unruliness? As you sit there and you think about your relationships in the body, um, are there ways in which people demonstrate unruliness more commonly than others? What are some of them? A little louder. Dress. The way they dress. Unruliness in the way they dress. God has standards for us, doesn't he? He has standards about modesty and he has standards about what is appropriate. Someone is unruly if they reject the appeal, the admonishment of a brother or a sister. That's a good one. Thank you. Others? Envying relationships, season of life kinds of things. Okay. I don't want to work too hard on this, so I'm just going to end things here. Also, um, not handling your money well so that you are not able to give to body. Yeah, stewardship. It's good. Those are really good. This is great. They just don't want to go there with you, do they? They're just not going to let you get there at all. Yeah. And it's, it's more subtle, but yeah. Second thing I wanted to talk about together here is um, what are some of the obstacles that would keep us from going to somebody? We see something, we, we know we need to, to go to a person. What are some of the things that we would think about, oh, maybe I shouldn't, I don't want to? What are, pride? Fear of man, okay. Perhaps thinking that we ourselves need to repent of that, and I think that's a reason not to say something because I mean, it might be a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. There's a principle there that um, God uses fallen and redeemed sinners in one another's lives. 
But when we go to someone with a message, we need to be living that message ourselves, right? Yeah, I really don't want to deal with this. Um, I don't want to walk through this water with somebody. It could get pretty deep, and I'm not sure I want to go there. Those are good. Um, just remember these principles that it's God's word that is leading you in this. Um, it is so comforting when you go to someone with God's word in front of you because you're not going to them with yourself. You're not going to them with your own wisdom. You're saying, this is God's wisdom for you. So we need to keep that in mind. So let's move on to encouraging the faint-hearted. Yeah, call the elder. That'll work. <laughs> That'll work every time. <laughs> yeah, and so this passage, this verse actually ends with be patient with all. And we're going to talk about what that means. Why do they have these three instructions of admonish, encourage, and help? And then at the end, there's this be patient with all of these people. And we'll talk about that, okay? So, encouraging the faint-hearted. Uh, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, let's go there, verses 13 through 18. The situation there, remember, the church is persecuted, okay? They're persecuted, and they are becoming very disheartened over the passing of their loved ones. The people in Thessalonica did not spend a great deal of time with Paul. Paul came in, gave them the gospel, and a month later he was gone. He was gone. So they, they didn't have a great deal of teaching in all these areas like the church in Ephesus, where Paul spent three years with them. These people were really well grounded. These people had three weeks a month, and Paul was gone. So one of their questions is, well, what happens to the believers when they die? We know about Jesus, we know about salvation, but there's a lot of holes here that we need to fill in. And they were ones who were very faint-hearted over their brothers and their sisters who were dying because they didn't know the situation. They didn't know how it was. So Paul addresses that in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Um, I'm going to read the beginning and the end of the passage. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. There is some grieving that is going on to the ones who have died. What is the deal with these people? They're grieving. So Paul says in verse 14, If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, here's the encouraging part, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The next couple of verses describe the actual return of Jesus. Jesus coming down from heaven. There's going to be a large shout. There's going to be a voice of an archangel. And then Paul addresses their concern at the end of verse 16. He says, After there's this trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will remain caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So Paul is providing really clear teaching on here's what happens to people who die when Christ returns. They're going to be raised from the dead and be in the clouds with him forever. And by the way, those who are alive are going to be, going to be caught up together with them as well. So at the end of verse 18, he says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
Encourage one another with these words. Your brothers and your sisters in Christ who have died, perhaps from natural causes, perhaps because of the persecution, they're going to be well. They're going to be raised from the dead to be with Christ. Those who are alive are going to join them in the clouds in the air with Jesus. How encouraging is that? So, the faint-hearted, it's a, it's a compound word in the Greek. The first part of it is oligos, which means small or little in quantity. And the second is psukos, which means your soul. So to fill in the blank, the faint-hearted one is the one with a small soul, a small spirit. And by the way, this is the only instance of this word in the New Testament. This, again, is likely to develop over a period of time. It's not something that flares up real quickly, just like the unruly one. The faint-hearted one is the person for whom circumstances have become so weighty and so challenging and so difficult that it's hard for them to find hope and joy in the course of life that God has given to them. Their circumstances have become the primary factor that informs their outlook on their present life and their future life. And this outlook often leads the believer who otherwise would know better to feel separated from the body of Christ. So that's what it means to be faint-hearted. To encourage. Let's look at what that means. Again, it's another compound word in the Greek. The first word is para, which means close beside, like a paramedic or a paralegal, close beside. The second word, mytheomai, means soothing speech. So to fill in your blank, to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Bringing comforting words from close proximity. A couple of observations about encouragement. First, effective encouragement comes from one who is near you. They're near to you. A friend who is close beside, a friend who draws near, is one who's willing to leave their own comfort zone willing to leave their own list of priorities in order to care for you. They're not kept away by their discomfort over one whose life looks different from theirs, whether it's financially, whether it's socially, whether it's someone who has very different standards in hygiene or social etiquette. That doesn't bother you. That person is willing to forgo all of those things in order to care for their brother or their sister. And... They're not kept away by this long list of things that they think God has for them to do that day. They're not kept away by their own busyness and their own busyness of life. If a sister is unwilling to enter into an unpleasant situation to walk alongside a friend, how can she bring encouragement to the one who's living where she's unwilling to go? To bring encouragement to come close alongside somebody You need to be willing to be where they are. You need to be willing to be alongside them to wear their shoes. So ask yourself, have I set up any boundaries, perhaps strong preferences, that would inhibit my readiness to encourage somebody? Am I so busy that I don't even notice the one who's faint-hearted? So the first observation about encouragement is that it comes from somebody who is near you. The second observation is that effective encouragement comes from one who has a soothing message. Right? These are comforting words from close proximity. They're not just words, 
They're comforting words. A soothing message is a message that brings comfort. It's a message that does two things. First, it acknowledges the situation, and at the same time, it brings the hope of the gospel to that situation. So we need to ask ourselves, do I know the gospel well enough to use it as a source of encouragement to my friend? Can I do so in a way that's winsome and doesn't just reek of theological insensitivity? You've got all the theology figured out, but you don't know how to bring it to your friend graciously and winsomely. Another question, do I regularly encourage myself with the gospel in my situations? Do I do this in my prayer life? When I'm praying, am I talking to God about the gospel and the realities of the gospel and how they should encourage me, whether I'm considering looking for another job, whether I'm in a season of life that I don't enjoy, I don't prefer, whatever it is, do I counsel myself with the gospel first? Do I share with others how the gospel truth has encouraged me? This is something where I've realized I need to grow. I personally need to grow in the area of telling those around me how the gospel is encouraging me in the things that are right in front of me. If I aim to do this for my sister in Christ, I need to be one who does this for myself first. So how do I encourage my brother or my sister? We'll see that Paul brings encouragement based on two things in this letter. In this letter and the next letter, Paul uses two things to encourage the believers in Thessalonica. First, he encourages them with their present position in Christ. And secondly, he encourages them with their future position in Christ. Let's talk about encouragement from the present situation in Christ. And again, we're going to stay entirely within these two letters. And remember, this is a group of people who are persecuted for their faith, and Paul knows it. So in chapter 3 of the first letter, we're going to read verses 1 through 3. Turn there if you would. Paul writes, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. At the end of verse 2. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. The encouragement that Paul gives here comes by reminding them of their identity in Christ. I'm going to encourage you as to your faith. He's not going to encourage them with their wealth. He's not going to encourage them with their social status or their job. He's going to encourage them in their faith. And in verse 3, that encouragement is what keeps them from being disturbed by their afflictions. Let's go over to the second letter, 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 4, the persecution is still there. It might be even stronger. Paul talks about, in verse 4 of chapter 1, that they have a perseverance and a faith in the midst of persecution and afflictions. And so down in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. The soothing message here has two parts. At the beginning of the verse, he says, You are beloved by the Lord. You are very dear and very precious to the Lord. 
And secondly, he says, your salvation is something that God has been very thoughtful about since before creation. God has chosen you from the beginning. Your salvation is no accident. It's not from you. It was in place before you even got here. It was in place before the creation was put here. God has chosen you. You're in the situation you're in because you are very, very beloved and important to God. All of creation God has used to bring about you in the circumstances where you are today. God has been working throughout all of history to bring about salvation for you. So we can encourage the sister with their present position in Christ. We can also encourage them with their future position in Christ. Back in the first letter, Paul is writing in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, this is when Paul was there, and he's speaking about his experience there. I was doing all of those things with you as a father would with his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory. Future implications here. The encouragement points to a future hope. There is a kingdom, there is a glory, there is certainly a kingdom here that you are in, but there is a kingdom that is coming that is going to be marked by a glory that we can't understand today. So Paul is encouraging them with future hope. He is reorienting their thinking away from their trials and to the future hope that will come. It's a kingdom that's ruled by Christ where everything is made right, where believers live on this earth for 1,000 years with Jesus, and they are going to rule and reign with him. As an aside, if, if you don't have the practice of doing this, every once in a while in your, pr- in your prayer life, do this. Think about the 1,000-year reign of Jesus and what it's going to look like for believers to be on this earth at that time with resurrection bodies, serving Jesus in a place and a time when everything is made right. There is no dishonesty, there is no cheating, there is no suffering. Everything is made right. Everything that is wrong here today, Jesus addresses every one of those things and makes them right. So Paul uses that reality to encourage the believers in Thessalonica. In chapter 3, in verse 11 through 13, he, he does the same thing. In verse 13, he says, uh, let's read it starting at 12. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before God and Father. When? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is a future hope. Jesus is coming to rescue this place. He is coming to make this right. He's going to be coming with Christians who have resurrected bodies that will will be immune to sin. We will have no pull of our flesh. Paul is pointing to that day. And his listeners, his readers, take great encouragement from that. So just think about that. Ponder the Messiah coming and setting up his rule and his reign. He's going to do it in Jerusalem. The ground is going to be raised. Everybody is going to know that Jesus is here. Paul uses that reality to encourage those in Thessalonica. A little bit ago we mentioned chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. In the middle of the passage, the passage that I didn't read, um, Paul again talks about those who are alive and are going to be remain, are going to be caught up with him. Just once again, Paul is pointing their attention at a future reality that is coming. If you're a believer 
Um, you have a very present salvation right now, but you also have a very future salvation that is a permanent salvation that is coming. Um, our present salvation is not impermanent. It's permanent as well. But there's an eternal salvation that is coming. It's very different from what we have. It's going to be characterized by a body that's very different. So Paul uses all of those things to encourage them. In the second letter, Paul is writing to them. He's explaining in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. We came to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Down in verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. Jesus is coming with mighty angels. He's not coming with guys with halos over their head with little wings. He's coming with mighty angels. And he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. We're the saints. Jesus is going to be glorified in us there on that day. More future reality for us. One more for us. Second Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul is just pouring it on here. He says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, and the two of them together, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strength in your hearts in every good work and word. He's saying here that eternal comfort and good hope by grace come directly from God. You can be comforted by the fact that the comfort comes from God. It doesn't come from some other place. It comes from God himself, who is over all of these circumstances. In their circumstance, it was persecution. He was saying, your comfort from comes from the God who rules over all of that. So um, we'll get to the, the week here in a minute, but one of the common questions is, how can I tell the difference between a person who is faint-hearted and one who is weak. We see that there is a separate command for each one. The command to the faint-hearted is that they receive encouragement. The command to the weak is that they receive help. Those are two different kinds of help. And remember the definition. Someone who is faint-hearted is someone whose soul is small. They're not necessarily lacking in any means or any ability. Their soul is small just because of an ongoing situation that has made them faint-hearted. Things are just hard. And the faint-hearted is helped first and foremost by soothing words from a nearby friend. What if I brought encouragement to someone but their disposition doesn't really seem to change? We're going to talk about patience here in just a little bit, but Scripture is really going to help us here. Ephesians 2, 4-6 through God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sin, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with Jesus and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One additional word of encouragement that you can give to the one who's faint-hearted is to say, do you understand that your eternity with God is just as certain as if you were already there? Ephesians 2.5 is, is written in the tense that shows us that this is a done deal. He raised us up with him and seated us with him. We have been seated in the past tense, even though we're sitting here and living out our life for these years here, we have been seated with Christ. And the point there is that it is as sure 
it is as certain as if it's already done. All right. One more to help the weak. The Greek word here means someone who is without vigor or strength. So literally, the weak one is one without strength. Duh. Again, this is a person who's, who's in a state, and they've probably been there for a while. Um, it's not something that just sprung up all of a sudden. This is a person who has no means to alter their circumstances. They are in this condition, and they can't get out. So the Greek word for help means to bring aid or to care for. Literally, to help is to bring aid to care for them. To bring aid to care for them. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, there were some persecuted Christians who were growing weak over a perceived delay in the return of Christ. Remember, Paul didn't have a whole lot of time with them. He only had a month. So he didn't cover a lot of things with them. There were still a lot of holes in their understanding. And one of them was... As we look with the faint-hearted, what about people who die? But another question was, okay, so when is Jesus coming back? When is this going to happen? And in the midst of all of their persecution, these people were growing weak over what to them was a perceived delay in Jesus' return. You said Jesus was coming back. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for him, and I'm growing weak while I'm waiting because there's all this persecution right outside my door. So let's do this. Um, Jesus himself taught about his return in many places in the New Testament. Let's turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at a passage, verses 35 to 48. Jesus has three analogies that relate to his return. This is important because it it bears directly on the issue that the people were thinking of. And he says in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 38, the first analogy is men who are waiting for their master to return from a wedding feast. And he says to them in verse 38, Therefore, whether he, the master, returns in the second watch or even in the third watch and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. The point there is you don't know whether the master is coming back in the second watch or the third watch. And the second analogy that he uses is the head of a household in verses 39 and 40 who had his house broken into. So Jesus says, You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. Jesus is coming when you don't expect him. Luke chapter 12, verse 46. The situation here is a steward who's been placed in charge of his master's servants. And the steward has not been faithful. And in verse 46, Jesus says, The master of that slave will come on a day when the steward does not expect him and an hour when he does not know. The point here is that Jesus is saying, You don't know that when I'm returning. You do not know when I'm returning. And when I return, you won't be expecting it. You just don't know. So back to 1 Thessalonians 5, you've got these people who are saying, When is Jesus returning? In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul writes, To the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Paul doesn't say the day of the Lord is going to come in 2057 or 2098 or whatever it is. He doesn't say that. He says it's going to come like a thief in a night. 
while they, the unbelievers, the persecutors, are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. And they will not escape. But you, brethren, you don't know when Jesus is coming, but you're not in darkness, and the day will not overtake you like a thief. I can't tell you when Jesus is returning. The important thing here is that you are not in darkness, and that day will not overtake you. Drop down to verse 10. Paul says, So, um, whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That day will not overtake us. We're going to live together with him. So Paul's help to these Thessalonians comes in two parts. First, in verses 1 and 2, there's the understanding that Christ's return will be sudden and will be unexpected. It will be unpredictable. And secondly, he brings assurance that because they're not in the darkness, the day of the Lord will not overtake them like a thief. They'll be together with Jesus. So Paul's help addressed a deficit in their understanding. And that deficit was regarding the return of Jesus and their togetherness with him. They did not understand when Jesus was coming. And Paul said, that's not the issue. What you need to know is it's going to be unknowable. It's going to be unpredictable. But you don't need to worry because you are not in the darkness. You're in the light. There are times when you've got a brother or a sister who needs help. And the way that you help is simply by meeting an immediate need. Whether it's a financial or a physical or a circumstantial need, if God has given you the means to meet that need, then by all means, bring glory to God by helping meet that need. But there are other times when your help is going to be aimed at correcting the lens through which the weak one views their world. Clear biblical truth can really help a person the way that Paul helped the Thessalonians. I'll share about my life as a young Christian. I used to think that the trials were God's way of punishing me. I used to think that because I was in a trial, I must have done something wrong very recently. It was God's way of satisfying his wrath against me. There was this formula that said, if I do something sinful, then God is going to bring a trial into my life. I had this thinking after I came to Christ at age 15, and it was in my life for a long, long, long time, well into my marriage. But I was blessed immensely when a brother walked me through James 1 and he said, you know, trials are God's tools in his hands to grow a Christian in maturity and completeness. He showed me James 1 that said, consider it joy when you face trials of a variety of kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and you may be complete. Trials are God's tool, God's instrument in his hands to grow you in maturity and completeness completely changed my world and my thinking about trials and the way I compose myself in the midst of those trials. So my weakness was to see trials as something you just get through, but the help from my brother enabled me to have a much more biblical understanding of God's design for my growth. So we want to take a few minutes to talk about some of the implications of this. Am I discerning enough to recognize when my friend is weak? If there is a weak one around you, are you sensitive and discerning and aware enough to know when they're weak? Are you listening to the things they say that tell you that they're weak? Do I understand what their root need is? Am I asking enough questions to get a good assessment of the situation? Sometimes when you see a situation, it's just so easy to run to it and go, okay, here, let me take care of that. When there's another need that really is underneath that, that needs to be addressed. If you don't address that need, it's going to pop up, maybe in some other form. 
So make sure you're asking the right questions. Another question you can ask yourself is, what means has God blessed me with that will allow me to help my weaker brother or my sister? Fourthly, how tightly do I cling to what the Lord has entrusted to me? Do I understand who my possessions really belong to? They're not ours. We're just stewards of them for God's glory. Okay, the fourth instruction is to be patient with anybody. Oh yeah, I forgot. Short break. So, uh, five minutes, ten minutes? Let's make it five minutes. Okay. Okay.